When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to John Cardina about the new book, Lives of Weeds, Opportunism, Resistance, Foley. Lives of Weeds explores the tangled history of weeds and their relationship to humans. Through eight interwoven stories, John Cardina offers a fresh perspective on how these tenacious plants came about, why they are both inevitable and essential, and how their ecological success is ensured by determined efforts to eradicate them. Well, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I would like to start by asking, how has this pandemic influenced you and your work? Um, in in uh, sort of different uh, and conflicting ways, w- one it um, uh, caused my laboratory to mostly shut down for for a while, and um, which um, made it very difficult to finish up a, a few uh, projects that we had. Um, but those are slowly going on. Um, we've been able to. Uh, handle, manage uh, uh, graduate student uh, uh, defense dissertations, all that, uh, mostly by uh, way of internet. Um, But also it uh, allowed me more time uh, for writing, for um, contemplation. Um, I'm able to, to access all the resources of a great academic library online. So um, it kept me. I was kept busy in that way without the kind of interruptions and worrying about parking and all those kinds of things that we normally do on a university campus. So, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I was uh, born and raised in Ohio, in USA. Um, I. Um, Grew up on a, a little patch of land uh, between two uh, industrial areas, 
um, and um, th those two now have have converged. And with urban sprawl, any urban land has been taken over. But at the time, it was considered the country, and we had a large garden. And we, and about a kilometer away from home, was a, a large woods, part of a large natural area. And I used to go there to hike, so I had the um, a, a great advantage of learning about uh, uh, garden farms and gardens because I worked on farms and we had a large garden. And then I also got to hike in the woods, which was some place where I spent a lot of my, my time growing up. And then I went to um, Ohio State University for my uh, undergraduate degree, and I spent a couple years uh, overseas in, in uh, West Africa and came back and finished my PhD uh, at uh, Penn State University. And were, were you always uh, so enticed with plants? <clears throat> you know, as, strangely, I think I, because we had the, the garden and of all that, we had six, there were six kids in the family. And for some reason, I was the one who, I guess was interested enough um, or wasn't able to come up with good enough excuses to to work in in the garden with my father and mother and so um, it, uh, I guess that was something that just came came natural for me uh, to work with with plants and I've had a curiosity about them and been tinkering with them for years. And along your career journey, were there any mentors that really supported you along the way? You know, strangely, there have not been any strong uh, mentors. Um, that was a, a frustration for me. I was sort of hoping uh, for that. But um, I, I sort of felt like uh, every place that I ended up, I was uh, taking my own path. And... Um, uh, there were certainly key people in, in my life that uh, influenced my ideas and attitudes, but there was no one who really, you know, I'd say, oh, I looked up to and I wanted to do as they did. And what would you tell our younger listeners and early career researchers and perhaps students who are studying biology and might consider a um, career in uh, agriculture? I, I would say that it's... Um, Obviously essential, people like to eat. And um, there are so many issues um, of concern to society uh, that, that uh, touch on agriculture. It doesn't matter uh, pretty much what your main area is, whether it's engineering or chemistry or biochemistry or math or physics, that, you know, all of those things, uh, genetics, all these things have uh, something to say about agriculture and food. And um, so I, I would say that it's, it's a place to uh, think about making some of the basic sciences uh, or even social sciences um, uh, give them some practicality uh, to help solve problems because we're facing some severe environmental uh, con um, constraints and with climate change, um, agriculture is coming under uh, increasing stress. And so whatever uh, field of endeavor 
students um, want to pursue, they, somehow it connects to agriculture. So your latest book is Lives of Weeds, Opportunism, Resistance, Foley. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Well, um, I, I studied uh, weeds most of my life, um, uh, working in, in the garden and, and in, on farms. I had this curiosity about weeds. But when I went to college, I had no interest at all in, in studying them because, um, uh, uh, you know, that wasn't uh, the kind of thing that, um, oh, had much attraction. Um, because it just seemed like, oh, weeds are sort of despised by most people, so why would you want to work with that? Um, and I, uh, in doing my uh, PhD research on uh, pesticide uh, impacts on um, microorganisms, um, I, I just had to learn about the pesticides and learn about the reason farmers were applying them, particularly herbicides. And that led me back to weeds, which, like I say, I had pretty much been studying most of my life anyways. And the more I got to know weeds and work with weeds and work with farmers or, or the general public, gardeners, whatever, um, I found a couple of things. One is that Everyone has a connection to weeds. I can't believe the, the number of times people find out that I studied weeds and, oh, they've got a story about this the weed or that weed or their great aunt used to use this one or they baked pie out of that, the seeds from that one. So everyone has a, has a connection with weeds, whether they, they know it or not. And so I thought I've been exploring this notion that Actually, there is this big connection between humans and, and weedy plants. And, um, and the more I explored that, um, the more I, I saw this is an area that has hardly been touched in, in the literature. There are many books about weeds, and of course, there are, people about, there are books about agriculture and people's need for food and all that. But to bring those two together was something that I thought would be unique and, and uh, to explore that, the connection between the people and the plants that they sort of love to hate. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm really loving the way you shift uh, this perspective of weeds from being on the side uh, to being protagonists in the story. <laughs> right, well... Um, so the, that's interesting. Yeah, the, the weeds are at the center of the story, but weeds are at the center of a lot of, of uh, social issues and environmental issues, certainly about the, um, the way we produce food, the kind of food we eat, um, just the way that our choices and how we manage the environment. These are, uh, and of course, the whole uh, controversy about uh, GMO food, most of that is all because of weeds. And um, so that's what I was, I'm not, I'm not trying to promote weeds in any way, but I just, I thought it was an interesting intersection there that most people are not too aware of. So in your book, you cover a lot of really interesting science. So let's delve into some of it. 
and we can start from the very basics. Can you describe what is a weed? <laughs> Somehow I knew you might ask that question um, because that is a question that comes up all the time. And it's actually, that's the other thing that, that I find when people find that I um, learn that I study weeds. Immediately, they give me a definition uh, of what a weed is. And so, you know, I've been working with them for 40 years and, you know, and that I need to be informed what they think a, a weed is. Um, uh, a weed, is, in, in my view, is very much in the eye of the beholder. Um, um, if you think it's a weed, then I will grant you that it, it can be a weed. There's no botanical, straight botanical definition of a weed. We can't uh, look at a plant and say, oh, that's, that's a weed, um, unless it's behaving in a way that we, we dislike, and then we can give it that name. The, the word weed actually has a long derivation that was actually at one time uh, used for people. Shakespeare referred to weeds with respect to, to people and their weed, stories of weeds in the Bible and all that. So weeds have been around a long, long time. Um, but And many philosophers and scientists have tried to come up with a very discreet answer for what is a weed. And, um, and most have, have not come up with anything satisfactory. Uh, the common definition is a, a, a weed is a plant out of place. Um, but um, a group of uh, molecular uh, biologists early on looked at, at weeds and their you know, genetic uh, changes that have occurred during the evolution of weeds and, and pretty much decided that there is no other place for weeds but where they are. So there, um, there, there was not like this place where there used to be no weeds and suddenly the weeds came in. So, and, and the other common definition goes back to um, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson in the 1800s where he said, weeds are plants whose virtues have yet to be discovered. And um, I, I don't like that definition particularly because most weeds um, have many virtues that are very well known. And so um, most of the weeds that I talk about in the book also has, have medicinal or practical uses um, that have been very well characterized, and yet they're still weeds. So that definition doesn't work. So I, just, I think that uh, a weed is a, is a plant that that um, is a product of uh, biology and human behavior that, um, and that's become adapted to um, human activity and it behaves in a way that's disagreeable. It's not a very clear definition, I'm sorry. No, fascinating. So it's very context dependent, as I understand. So how did our relationship began with weeds? Well, it goes back to uh, the very beginning of uh, agriculture, of, of settled agriculture. Um, the, uh, um, as soon as people, early uh, people realized that they could encourage the growth of of desirable plants, maybe um, um, 
uh, tubers or bulbs or, or things like that that they desired and they realized, oh, they could actually collect these and and bury them and and they would come up again. Probably this was found around, this, this discovered around you know, trash heaps that, you know, you throw pieces of, uh, of the uh, food plant away and then they, lo and behold, it, it appears again the next year. And, and there's a belief that uh, women in particular um, were the ones who first domesticated crops by um, you know, collecting the seeds and collecting the tubers and so forth and um, placing them in the ground and realize that they could encourage them to grow. Well, as soon as you do that, you can't just leave those those plants there because when you come back, the, that uh, place is just going to be full of plants that you don't like. And they found very early on that if they removed the undesirable plants that the desirable ones would grow better, and so those undesirable plants were became weeds, and they they um, struggled to to remove them from uh, crops. Uh, began uh, at least you know with early agriculture, thousands of hundreds of thousands of years ago. So how were weeds? interconnected with the agricultural revolution. Right. Well, there, uh, there's a popular notion that um, it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek notion, I think. Uh, uh, Michael Pollan talked about it and Harari talked about it and other anthropologists have, have talked about it that um, the uh, plants like uh, potatoes or, or apple trees um, essentially um, demanded the activity of humans to, um, to spread the, the genes of those plants around. And um, uh, that that is where domesticated agriculture began. Um, in 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 my view, uh, domesticated agriculture began at the beginning of the in other words the the beginning of the um, agricultural revolution began when the first hoe touched or stick sharp stick touched the ground to remove uh, weeds so that the crops could grow. Um, just planting seeds. Um, uh, w- was never going to be sufficient for successful agriculture. Farmers had to keep returning to the spot where they planted seeds to remove the weeds. And uh, that's where, and that required people to stay in place rather than being nomadic. And uh, someone had to stick around and uh, keep the weeds out of the fields so that the crops would grow. And that's the connection between weeds and the uh, agriculture revolution. So as we progress through the ages, people realize that they had to manage weeds somehow. So what kind of ways uh, were invented? Well, so some people say this is the great struggle of... uh, Humanity since the beginning of the, the agriculture revolution is to keep uh, weeds under control so that crops will grow and we can feed uh, uh, larger and more complex uh, societies. 
Um, so there are all manner of things that have been used to control weeds. Obviously, initially, things like fire, um, uh, physical manipulation, uh, sharp sticks and sharp stones, rudimentary tools uh, like that, um, uh, animal grazing, uh, and then um, it was very early on, people started using things like salt. Um, the, the stories of, uh, oh, I don't know my ancient Greek very well, but there are stories of, of civilizations there where, you know, one army would dump salt on the land of the other, and, and uh, so the crops wouldn't grow. But then they realized, hey, we could use this to control weeds. So salts of all sorts were used for uh, a long time. Um, it, you can imagine that the labor of pulling weeds um, by hand or even just with rudimentary tools is not uh, especially, you know, highly valued or desired. Nobody wants to do that. So they're you know, looking around um, for all kinds of things to make that the labor easier. And the idea of, gee, if I could just throw something on the soil here uh, to keep the weeds from growing uh, would make my life easier. And so, like I said, they use salts. And then in the, as more complicated um, or, uh, chemicals were developed, um, particularly with the um, advent of uh, organic chemical synthesis, uh, then people started using all kinds of uh, things, uh, petroleum-based products to control weeds. And of course, now, um, uh, in conventional agriculture, um, uh, highly technical uh, formulated uh, herbicides are the main, main approach, but of course, there's still many farmers who refuse to do that and go back to using older methods. And uh, are there also uh, genetic engineering approaches? Uh, for example, many would be familiar with the herbicide Roundup. Right. So I'm, I didn't catch the first part of your question. Are there... So uh, what about genetic engineering? Oh, okay, to... genetic. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, Right. Um, well, the point of, of uh, the, the first use of genetic engineering uh, in uh, developing GMO crops, um, well, actually the early work began in, in the late 70s and through the 80s, but in the um, 90s, uh, they were able to modify a particular gene in a soybean plant so that um, farmers could spray glyphosate, or the commercial name at the time was Roundup, on, um, on the soybean, and the, the uh, soybeans would, would tolerate it because it had a modified gene uh, from a soil bacterium that, that could... Um, uh, function just perfectly well in the presence of Roundup. And so uh, they found a way to insert that into the, the 
soybean cell and into the seeds. And um, it, farmers considered this nearly miraculous that they could plant soybeans. And previously, the, the, the herbicide killed all the weeds, every plant that it touched. But now it could continue to kill all the weeds, but uh, the, the soybeans would continue to grow. And, and like I said, initially, this, this just looked miraculous. And since that time, um, they've continued to, to do that with um, uh, to, to make crops resistant to other, uh, other chemical herbicides. But the Roundup one is, is the main one where um, that's where the whole GMO technology was developed. And as you note in your book, this puts selective for pressure, both on plants, but also on weeds, so having different herbicides. And you propose this new term, uh, agristal selection, if I'm pronouncing correctly. So can you tell us what does it mean? Right. So um, I, when I use, I invented the term, it isn't that fancy really, agrestal selection. Agrestal is a word that means of the field, refers to agricultural fields. Um, and practices, including herbicides, but not limited to herbicides, that, um, that uh, humans impose on, on weed populations in agricultural fields. And um, after you know, repeated use of a particular practice, those weeds that have a genetic potential to survive that will be the ones that produce seeds and appear there the next year. So regardless of the method you use to control weeds, over time, we seem to be selecting for weeds that are more and more difficult to control. Um, and of course, with with um, a herbicide, uh, where the herbicide is a, is attacking a many times just a, a single enzyme, then finding a mutation in that weed population that that can tolerate so that those plants can tolerate that that herbicide is you know we find you know, strangely, is not as uncommon as was uh, once thought. But the same thing actually happens um, with respect to um, tillage, for example. Um, if, you, if you till early in, in the season, then the, the plants that are able to, to wait out that tillage and come in later in the season are the ones that will be favored because they're the ones that will survive. So I, I call that aggressive selection. It's essentially natural selection, but it's uh, with all the rules of you know, Darwinian selection. But it, um, but it occurs because it occurs in agriculture, the pressures, the, the, the pressures that are imposed by humans as in an agricultural setting. So I, neither the pressures nor the setting are natural. So I thought, well, natural selection might be, uh, be confusing. So I thought, well, aggressive selection describes it more clearly. 
Mm, so it's very much human in both as compared to natural. Yes, yes, yes. That that's the difference. That's the difference. The natural selection, well, that can that just occurs without human. It can occur out in the wild without human influence. That's how this you know um, evolution was for millions and millions of years. But once humans came in and started imposing uh, selection pressure, then then things change. And so that's what I'm uh, referring to there. And of course, herbicides are, are the most maybe extreme and, and easiest example of that to understand. So in your book, you introduce us to eight plants that have been labeled weeds, at least at some point. So how did you cho- chose uh, those eight out of many, I suppose? Sure. Um, well, I, I chose those because I thought that they represented different aspects of this association between humans and weeds. And so they, and in that way, each weed represents sort of a different path to weediness. And also because I worked with all those, uh, each of those species and has some kind of personal connection. After all, if I'm, if I'm going to write about the connection between people and weeds. I mean, I'm in the category people most of the time, so um, I figured that I needed to put myself in into there too. So, my I have my own personal story of my connection to the weeds is there, and then also the the weeds follow a trajectory of severity and maybe scale of impact on on people from some that I hardly consider important to some that are that are affecting or and responding to global change. So that that's why why I, I chose those weeds. There I started out with a longer list, but I had to to uh, uh, bring it down to a manageable number. And in each speech in each case I also uh, found a way to teach a little bit about plant ecology. And each one I tried to to bring out a different area of things like seed dormancy, photosynthesis, floral biology, vegetative reproduction, basic genetics, things like that. So that it's in a way, um, some people have said, oh, you know, why didn't you write it as a textbook? Well, I, I wanted it to be what I, I think more interesting than a textbook. Um, so I have one little piece of of, of weed biology, uh, plant biology, in, in each of those eight that I think are represented well by those species. So the first plant you talk about is dandelion, and I was surprised that it was called weed. I, I never knew that. So can you give us uh, a bit more of an insight into what it is? <laughs> Wow. Well, in uh, in in the United States, dandelion is, I mean, probably most the most widely uh, uh, known plant that is considered a weed. Anytime you know, when I talk about weeds, people will say, "Oh, I have dand- I have this problem with dandelions. What do I do about it?" You know. Um, personally, I don't think Dan, I'm with, I'm with you. I don't really consider dandelion to be a weed. And if it is, and it's not very important. Um, but, um, 
Americans are very, um, uh, uh, say, uh, status conscious, and and dandelion is the is a very socially constructed weed that really is a weed that, that shows that a weed is it can be um, a reflection of 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 cultural values. Um, so. Um, uh, people want a a lawn in their in front of their house that has n- no weeds and dandelion you know has a yellow flower in the springtime and then they turn white and people consider that to look unsightly and and what I find strange about that is first of all there are many weeds out there and that they many plants rather. Uh, yellow-flowered plants that they would put in their flower garden that I don't think look very much different than a dandelion. And those are highly prized and desired. Yet the dandelion that grows freely, um, for some reason, they they have a a big concern about that. So people would come to me and ask how to manage, how to control dandelions. And and I many times I just asked, is it really doing any harm? You know, is it... Because dandelions, they're not poisonous. They don't hurt anyone. They don't have thorns. They don't really, in my view, do any harm. Not like not like a, an agricultural weed that is, um, you know, interfering with a, a, an economic activity like crop production. Um, so, but 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 people really hold up this aesthetic of the perfectly green lawn. And so they're willing to spray uh, herbicides, uh, particularly 2,4-D and other things like that. Um, They'll spray those on their lawn, even though there are known health hazards of 2,4-D. 2,4-D is also very toxic to weed, to uh, uh, bees um, that can kill fish if it gets in the groundwater. It has all kinds of environmental, uh, potential environmental impacts. Um, uh, the neighbors walk through your yard right after you've planted in 2,4-D. The kids walk through there. They walk and then go into the house, so they carry 2,4-D with them. It just, it, to me, it seems um, like they're taking a huge risk, but for some reason, they must consider it worth it. And so... I, what my the story, the way I have looked at it is, it, it's this shows the power of a weed to make people do things that are potentially harmful, but because the weed is a socially constructed uh, uh, entity with you know particular cultural values, people are willing to behave that way. So in a sense, the dandelion influenced human behavior. Yeah, I was thinking that nowadays you can even get dandelion leaves grown for food. So do you think there's a potential that it will be at some point relabeled from being a weed to being a commercial plant? Well, there, sure, there, yeah, that's, there are many places that sell dandelion. Well, the problem is common names are, common names are confusing. Many, uh, in the grocery stores here, we have, we many times see something called dandelion, but that is not 
the same species as the we. That's usually a sicorium. It's like a chicory, whereas the dandelion, the taraxicum, is, is something different. They're very closely related, and they both have yellow flowers. But um, what the dandelion greens that most uh, people eat here are not truly dandelion. Um, uh, but... Um, to find an, a dandelion plant in, in the U.S., my, my grandfather used to make dandelion wine, but that was before people were spraying their lawns all the time. Um, but nowadays, um, it's, it, I would, it's precarious to find a dandelion and, and try to, unless you know that you've managed it yourself. Um, but right, it has great nutritional value and, and it can be eaten. It's a little bit sour once it gets too big, but, um, you know, so yeah, it has food value. The roots also can be dried and ground and, and used. Um, so, but it's like all weeds have that. All weeds have some kind of utility. Um, yet the, the, the social, the social norms are that you can't have the yellow flower and then the white puffs, seed puffs in, in your yard. And so people are willing to, to do all kinds of things to get rid of them. Oh, gotcha. So I won't be picking up dandelions on my walk <laughs> for my salad. <laughs> Not in the U.S. <laughs> so another uh, weed, which is much less familiar to me uh, that you cover is the velvet leaf and it's a distant cousin to cocoa well very it's in the same same family right um the that that's a very complicated family the malvaceae um uh that has been reorganized by taxonomists several times but but most in the most recent uh reorganization right they've put um well it's it's very more closely related to to crops that people would be familiar with like perhaps okra and cotton flowers like hibiscus um things like that and and then and linden trees and for some reason they put uh, uh, cocoa trees into that same group but if you look at a cocoa pod um, if you've ever seen one growing on a, uh, on a tree um, it does have a resemblance if you use your imagination <laughs> it has a resemblance to sort of a bloated okra and that seed that is and if you compress that down it would look like the velvet leaf seed capsule so you there is a there is a morphological similarity in those and i and i guess that uh you know geneticists now have found that there actually is uh, some kind of a you know, connection enough that they lump them together into the same family but families plant families can be quite diverse and, you know, hundreds of, of species. So how did velvet leaf earn its designation as a weed? Right. Well, it came, it was used in China in ancient times as a, uh, as a crop to make rope. Now, I didn't, I originally didn't think much of rope but if you consider rope was an essential uh, early invention of early people because rope 
It's, it's like string. It's used to tie up things. It's used to, um, for well, put together for clothing. It's all kinds of of uses to carry, to haul, to put. You know, many people together can using rope can move great boulders. So um, it was really an essential part of early society in China. And so the velvet leaf was one of the plants that was used because it has these long, long fibers in the stem, which would tell you that it has a very tall plant. And um, uh, another plant that people would be more familiar with as a rope-making plant is hemp. Uh, and somehow the two plants, velvet leaf and hemp, got tangled together um, someplace between what's now China and what's now Russia. And the two of them were used um, together for for making rope. And um, uh, the hemp is, is finicky and a little more difficult to grow. And so, well, you know, in the markets, people would throw a little bit of velvet leaf stems in there and nobody knew the difference. And so the two traveled together. Um, and then in the early days of the, uh, the uh, you know, U.S., well, the beginning of the United States in the 1700s, you know, people were were incredibly the, the international commerce was incredibly dependent on rope because it, they used sailing ships, and so these ships had miles and miles, uh, could be five or more miles of rope on on the ships, uh, some great big diameter to pull up a great big heavy anchor. So rope was an essential commodity uh, for trade and, of course, for the navies. Um, and, um, so do you, uh, any, any country, uh, needed to, to have a, have a source of, of rope for shipping. And early on in the, in the, uh, days of the United States, um, um, George Washington, um, uh, wanted to stimulate the domestic economy. And so he put a tariff on rope. Uh, so that uh, rope would be grown, rope crops would be grown in America rather than imported, and um, that was a little bit of a problem because the the American grown versions were not very good. They weren't managed as well as the the rope that came from Russia. The hemp came from Russia, and um, that was what brought the hemp seeds and velvet leaf seeds in into the U.S. And at that time, they were both still considered crops. And so, when uh, Washington put, um, uh, with the help of Alexander Hamilton, imposed this uh, tariff. Um, he essentially was promoting um, the spread and dispersal and growing and and actually genetic adaptation of of what would become a major agricultural weed, which was velvet leaf, and a, and a plant with, uh, that would become a major illicit drug, which is marijuana. So I, I don't think Washington had any idea that that's what he was doing at the time. 
Um, but then once um, it was recognized that the quality of rope from velvet leaf was not very good, it was essentially abandoned. And But they had already spread seeds all over the, the place, and, and then it, when it appeared in farms and gardens, um, it became uh, a cursed weed. Um, even though for many years there were many attempts to revive it um, and as a, as a crop for different purposes, not only rope, but for all kinds of things, uh, different chemicals that could be extracted from the, the seeds or the stem. Um, it has actually a very sticky stem uh, once it's mature, and it, that uh, the, the material that um, is in the, the sticky hairs can be used uh, to deter insects. So people have tried to extract that and use it as an insecticide. There are all kinds of attempts to do that and to get farmers to grow velvet leaf. And most of the time, you know, farmers know well enough that uh, this, this is not something that they want to keep uh, uh, planting in their fields. And so it never became an, an important and crop, and then once soybeans came in as a major crop to the United States, um, originally it was used as a forage crop. But when it was then discovered its use as an oil crop, um, then then velvet leaf uh, became the most important weed, annual weed in in soybean production, because the two both came from China. They came from the same area of China. They were adapted to the same soil, the same environmental conditions. And um, at the time, there were no good uh, controls for, for velvet leaf. So that's how it became a major weed. So how do you see our relationship with weeds evolving in the future? For example, when we have hydroponic farms, can we move away from this eradication mindset? Well, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of hydroponics as a way to, uh, for future agriculture just because of the energy demands. Um, but... People have tried to convince me that actually it uh, does make sense. Uh, um, right, the weeds, the the weeds that we're used to dealing with would not be a problem in hydroponics. Um, I think with as long as the water is is moving that um, the only weed problem might be algae or, or things, things like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know that hydroponics is really the future of food production. Um, I, I sort of doubt it, but I could be wrong. And, and if it is, then, then right, then the, those, in that respect, weeds wouldn't be so much of a problem. But, but still, we're going to be producing some some crops in fields and on, on farms. I would hate to see a day when, when you know, everyone had moved inside and, and we no longer went outside and and had uh, people. People will always want to have gardens um, and they'll always want to have uh, places of, of beauty and grow their own vegetables and things like that. I, I'd much rather have my own grow my own vegetables and to grow something that was hydroponically grown.
Yeah, for sure. Unless it's uh, somewhere on Mars. <laughs> so now thinking about the bigger picture, what would be the key implications of exploring this field for our society? Um, so what, what I think, I'm not, like I say, I'm not expecting that um, uh, I'm going to be encouraging people to study weeds or to maybe to have a little more respect for weeds and the amazing things that they do. Um, but what I mostly want, want to explore is the is this connection that we have to the natural world and um, weeds are just one are one component of that through which we can learn about the natural world and um, and I think if um, particularly if 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 we had had more understanding or, uh, of the how weeds behave um, when they first developed the GMO crops, that um, the whole problem of resistance could have could have been avoided. Um, but that's that's another that's speculation, I suppose. <laughs> but um, I I just I want to I want readers to to see that actually um, they are connected to. To weedy plants, they're connected to the to the natural world through weedy plants, and that the way we manage, the way we treat the environment, has uh, an, a, a big impact on this our relationship with with plants, and particularly plants like weeds that are very closely um, associated with human activity. So it's mostly. Um, it's it's trying trying to um, in, encourage um, some greater understanding of that connection, our connection to the natural world. Oh yes, for sure, that's so important. I always have my app for plant identification when I'm outside. <laughs> <laughs> so, what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Lives of Weeds, surprised you the most? <laughs> Right when I when I was writing uh, Lives of Weeds, I um, I knew about the the weeds from mostly from a, a agricultural and biological perspective, um, but but I didn't in in a in a general sense. But when I started exploring um, the the sociological connections, the environmental connections, the natural history, um, and um, um, those kinds of connections, uh, I was surprised first of all to see how ancient many of the, these plants are, and, and some of them, and then others like uh, ragweeds and uh, mare's tail um, were hardly considered weeds at all until um, just really uh, a few years ago, but only because of the, the pressures, the aggressive selection that, that humans imposed made them into weeds very quickly, whereas something like um, nutsedge was known to be a weed you know, 
thousands of years ago. So um, what I <laughs> what I came down to to learning is that you know weeds would not be weeds without humans and human activity, and humans would not be, we wouldn't be who we are without weeds. We've responded to each other. Like I said, the more that the more we try to to control them, the more they respond. The, we're selecting the genotypes that tolerate our conditions, so we change our practices, and then the weeds in turn respond. So there's this back and forth, and it's that back and forth that so coevolutionary, if you will, uh, interaction that that um, surprised me. The most. So, do you allow different weeds to grow in your garden? And have you tried counting the number of species that you have? <laughs> um, it, well, I do let a few weeds grow in my garden. I, the ones that are edible, that um, that um, they're usually edible for a short period of of time. Um, like purslane and lamb's quarters, but if they get too big and they 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 are able to set seed and and take over the area, I that that uh, I don't I don't like that that because then I start having to pull them out, so I don't uh, reduce production of other things that I'm that I'm growing. Um, I, I'm I'm very uh, lucky because it, when you have an area, a, a farm area where you don't let the weeds go to seed for many years, um, you can really reduce the impact of those, of those weeds. So I do let some go, um, so because I enjoy them. I, um, some that, and that's the thing. It depends on what. If, if some that I let go, I don't consider weeds, and other people would consider it. But it just depends on our our point of view, I suppose. Maybe just allocate a small uh, plot in your garden to attract yeah. some of the <laughs> insects as well. <laughs> well, right. That's the other thing. So, it's like milkweeds. I mean, they're they're farmers will spray milkweeds and try to get rid of milkweeds. But there are what three, maybe five species of milkweeds. And uh, they're beautiful. So I plant them on the outside, and I try to encourage the, the, the pollinators, the butterflies, to come there. There are a few others like, like that in the, uh, in the uh, carrot family that I let grow because they support uh, the uh, uh, swallowtail butterflies, things like that. So I'm, I have a little area that I actually several areas that that I like to encourage particular weeds to to grow so that because I know that they're they're favorable for pollinators but as far as me counting the weeds in my garden now I've done enough of that in my garden. <laughs> <laughs> well this has been a truly fascinating discussion so can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project um so right now I'm exploring ideas for a book on uh, invasive plants of natural areas rather than weedy plants of, of crop fields. 
I make a distinction between those. I know that the distinction isn't really clear, but I think that there are enough differences that it makes sense to, to differentiate uh, those. And um, what I'm dealing with is, is that the problems with invasive plants in natural areas is maybe more complicated than, than for weeds in agriculture. Farmers don't disagree on which weeds are weeds. Okay, everybody knows pigweed is a weed. Okay, um, they, they might disagree on on how to manage it. That and that's where the big environmental concerns come in. How you know? Do we spray? Do we do tillage? Do we risk soil erosion? What do we do? Whereas for invasive plants, there isn't even agreement on whether a plant is invasive many times. And there's our commercial interests that are selling plants that some people believe are invasive. And I, I don't want to enter the argument. In my book, Lives of Weeds, I think you would notice, I don't take a side in the controversy about um, agriculture, GMO crops, all that kind of stuff. I try to, I respect all sides and I'm trying to stay neutral. So it's the same thing with invasive plants. But if I call something an invasive plant, I know there will be people who want to argue with me about that. So I'm trying to I'm trying to navigate that territory uh, 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 gingerly and just talk about the biology, which I think is the most fascinating part. And, you know, I'm, I'm a biologist. I want people to appreciate the wonder and beauty of the natural world, not to be distracted by the petty arguments. So that's what I'm, that would be my next project um, that I'm walking into very carefully. And what would be the best way for our listeners to my, find more information about your work and also your book? Well, the, the book, of course, is... Um, you know, index, you can get it, um, you can search for Lives of Weeds on, in my last name, Cardina, C-A-R-D-I-N-A, uh, you know, on Google or Amazon. Um, it's, you know, it's available as a digital copy. Um, it's available as an audio uh, file and, of course, as a, as a hard copy in paperbacks uh, from uh, Cornell University Press. And so, um, as for information about me, I've never looked, tried to look up information about me, so I don't know. But I'm assuming if you Google me, you'll find my information from my work at Ohio State University. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I've truly learned a lot. Well, thank you. It's been great speaking with you.